All right, how was everyone's lunch? Good. All right, quick poll. Who got the main cart? All right, who got, who got the grilled cheese? Who got something else entirely? Who skipped lunch? Couple of you. All right. Amen. So, my discussion is on pursuing holiness in the public square. So, really easy topic. Okay. So, um, but but if you will um, go with me to the Lord in prayer uh, briefly, Father, we come to you knowing you are good. You are not only good, but you are the standard of all goodness. And because you are good, you cannot allow anyone who is not good into your glory. So Lord, as we are here at this conference, learning about pursuing holiness, pursuing your goodness, Help us to do that individually. Help us do it corporately, helping our fellow churchmen. And Father, as we learn here how to apply it in a specific arena of life, help us understand what your word says most importantly so that we may do so to the glory of of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Quick question. Who here is familiar with the standard three divisions of the Old Testament law? I think I saw four hands, which is great because the first part of my discussion discusses that. If most of you knew it, I could just jump halfway down. So, But uh, there is uh, quite a bit of debate uh, on this. And also, real quick, just as a side note, like this is going to be a bit more of a lecture than it is a sermon. Uh, I don't think they trust me to exegete scripture, but it's a different story. But um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but um, there, there is a bit of debate on this, and if you're familiar with um, how the Old Testament law is to relate to the believer. Uh, that's kind of a big debate. And there's, uh, if you have a room of 10 people, you'll come out with 14 different opinions. So, um, so it, it can be kind of controversial. However, what uh, does remain is that there are certain aspects of the law that are distinctly applied. So you do have moral aspects of the law. You do have civil aspects of the law. You do have ceremonial aspects of the law. Regardless, if you want to categorize it that way, uh, those facts do remain. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 17. You don't have to turn there, uh, but Deuteronomy 17 discusses the, um, the rules for a king in Israel. What's interesting is this came uh, about 400 years before a king actually existed. It's almost like God knew what was going to happen. Shock, right? But then you get to Leviticus chapter 21. Leviticus 21 is the rules for a priest. 
You're like, okay, well, so you got rules for a king and rules for a priest. And um, what's interesting is also a really cool fact is not every Israelite was the king of Israel. Did you know that? Also, not every Israelite was a priest of Israel. Furthermore, the priest was never to be the king. And the king was never to be a priest. If you're familiar with King Saul, this is exactly why he got in trouble. He was to wait for Samuel, the prophet, to come to offer the sacrifice, and he didn't. He took on a priestly role to himself. One could even argue that there is, in a sense, a theological separation of church and state in that regard. Now, that doesn't mean it's the same way when secularists say, no, separation of church and state. Well, no, that's just because you don't want the church to speak morally about your situation in the public square. But on the other hand, we do believe in a theological separation of church and state because we don't believe that the states can tell the church how to worship. You in the church, you can't sing. You need to have a mask over your face. You in the church, you need to separate your chairs six feet apart. Does this sound familiar? No? Okay, let's keep going. Uh, (laughs) However, regardless of the disagreements uh, that we have, there is a shared acknowledgement that God's law does encompass a moral aspect. And we're all in agreement from the, what's called the dispensationalist view Uh, which says no part of the law is for today unless it's repeated again in the new covenant or the far other side, which is called theonomy, that the civil aspects of the old covenant are to be explicitly and strictly applied to today. Regardless of wherever you are on that spectrum, we can all agree that there are moral aspects of God's law that are to be applied today regardless. So let's... Uh, break these three systems uh, down just real quickly uh, because the systems themselves are not the point of the talk. So the Old Testament does uh, provide, and uh, stated this already, but real briefly, uh, it does provide a multifaceted uh, construction that there are ceremonial, civil, and uh, moral. The... um, the civil aspects went all the way down to governing societal conduct and providing specific statutes and guidelines for orderly functioning of society. They discussed uh, various social, civil, judicial matters, uh, such as property rights. If, uh, If you believe that you own your property today, if you believe no one shall steal your property today, That is uh, specifically from Old Testament law. We can find it and we can trace it throughout history uh, that King Albert of, or no, it was Alfred, sorry, uh, of uh, England established um, what was called English common law specifically and directly from the Old Testament. And then American law derives a lot from English common law. Therefore, one could argue that American property rights are directly from the Old Testament. 
Further, there's also the ceremonial law, which says, uh, basically it regulates the religious practices. Um, delving kind of really intricately and precisely into how the people of Israel were to worship. This is not just uh, um, the various aspects of worship, but it's also um, not just the sense that they are to sacrifice, but how the sacrifice was to happen. You were to raise up a lamb that is to be blemish-free. But you can't sacrifice one that's too young nor can you sacrifice one that's too old. It has to be within this age range. You're like, wow, that's really specific on how God regulated his people to worship. Finally, these moral laws. And I would argue that those are temporary as they were associated with the old covenant, but the moral law stands unchanging in its ethical conduct that while the moral law existed since before the beginning, it also existed before the giving of the law. For example, Genesis chapter four, who's familiar with Genesis chapter four and the flow of Genesis? So you got creation, Genesis one and two, what happened in Genesis three, the fall, and what happened immediately after that? the story of Cain and Abel, right? So you have in the, uh, in the curse um, toward the serpent, Genesis 3.15, God says, the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. And what's the very next passage? You start to see the seed of the woman, Cain and Abel. And you're like, oh, there they are, right? They're gonna crush the head of the serpent. Well, what happens? Well, Cain did crush someone's head. Not to be morbid, it's just, that's what happened. So that doesn't seem to be the one that is promised just the chapter before. So murder happened, right? Well, the law wasn't given yet, so that means murder's okay up until the giving of the law, right? So God was just like, yeah, this is great, yep. Nope, you're fine, don't worry about it. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say that's bad until you know another thousand years later. Right? Is that what happened? No. God judged him for it, didn't he? And yet, you shall not murder was not actually written down until much later. This means that the moral law transcends even the giving of the law. It transcends the covenant. So when the old covenant passed away, the moral law did not. So then the question is, well, okay, Nick, that's kind of, you know, philosophizing. You're, you're, you're deducing this. Well, we actually see this in Scripture explicitly. Romans chapter 7, you know, Paul's kind of wrestling a little bit. You know, I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I do want to do. Oh, who will free me from this body of death? Oh, thanks be to God in Christ Jesus. Right, beautiful passage. But what, what does he say beforehand? He's saying that there is a war even within his own flesh that while his, uh, while his soul has been saved and he is now a new creation in Christ, he's still fighting that within him. Now, raise your hand if you kind of feel the same thing. 
with, as Paul. You're like, you're like, oh man, I really feel this sin is kind of hard on me today. You know, you still feel that what the Second London Baptist Confession says that the um, that the corruption remains still. But Romans seven seven, Paul specifically states that the law, and he cites the Ten Commandments. He says that the law is revealing what is right and wrong. He says, how would I have known not to covet if the law said, do not covet? So how do we know what is right and wrong? Oh, because my heart feels this way when I do this thing. I just don't have a peace about that. Some of you laughed a little bit because you've said that recently. No, our standard is not feeling a peace about it. Our standard is not follow your heart. Our standard is not my friends want me to do this or my pastor does it this way. No, the standard is God's law. We see this further, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. If you think, you know, Jesus and Paul disagreed on that as a bigger problem, come visit me afterward. But Jesus here states very specifically on the continuation of the authority of God's moral law. And then he goes on to cite specifically, uh, you shall not commit adultery and you shall not murder. So there's no way in any proper understanding that we can say that the moral law is no longer in effect today. So the question then is not necessarily about the moral law. The question is, is how do we apply the moral law, at least in this breakout session, to the public square? We need to understand how the moral law applies in our churches because if we're not following the moral law in our churches, that means we're not following scripture and you should probably get out of that church. Um, We need to follow it in our homes. And if you wanted specifically Alan's classes back there and then the public square, which is why you are here today. So public theologians uh, is what the phrase is called a public theology, a theology that speaks to the public, okay? So if you want to, you know, Google, you know, like, well, what's this topic on? It's called public theology. But public theologians, particularly pastors, actually shoulder this weight, and they must. They have a significant responsibility of shepherding their congregations. But their congregation doesn't stay there every Sunday or excuse me, every single day throughout the week, do they? Like, you do not remain at your local church body forever, all the time, do you? Who here does not go to church at Bethel Mennonite? So you're demonstrating my point. However, you go to work. You go to a softball field. You go to the grocery store. 
go to a friend's house, right? Maybe, maybe you stay at home and you invite the neighbor over for dinner. So the pastor has a particular responsibility to equip the body to do public theology. That's a hard thing. It truly is. And I would argue that is precisely when the church started to develop a theological belief that we are not under law is when society started getting worse even faster. Now, you might say, wait a second, no, 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 no. That's actually, that's actually a biblical phrase, right? Romans chapter six. Paul says, no, we are not under law. We are under grace, and you're right. But that would be taking a biblical phrase and using it unbiblically. Paul is not saying that we are not under the responsibility of the law. He's saying that we are no longer under the salvific obligation or the penalty of the law. That's why when you move through the rest of Romans 6 and then into Romans 7, which is what I just pointed out, Paul is actually citing the law as your standard. And then in Romans 8, how does it start? One of the first verses everybody memorizes, right? For there is now no, therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? So there's no condemnation according to the law. That doesn't mean that we're not required to seek it, to pursue it, if you will. But this is not just the pastor's duty, is it? This is every Christian's responsibility to do it. You see in Ephesians 4, chapter, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 12, you see a lot of people tend to cite verse 11, which says that Christ has given apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And then they stop there. The problem with that is that's not even the end of the sentence, much less the end of the thought. Verse 12 says that Christ has given these to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And you think about that for a second, you're like, wait a second. No, it's the pastor's job to do the work of ministry. That's not what the apostle led by the Holy Spirit said. The apostle led by the Holy Spirit said, no, it is the congregation's job to do the work of the ministry. And it's the pastor's job to equip the congregation to do the work of ministry. So what does this look like in the public sphere? We see various examples of this. Um, but before we jump to the examples, I want to comment on just one, one little thing. How many of us have heard some of these phrases before? I'm not under law, I'm under grace. Normally it's in the context when you're trying to correct or rebuke them, isn't it? No, 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 you're just a legalist. Right? It's generally the context in which we hear it. The problem is, is one, Christians don't know their relationship to the law. But secondly, they also don't know what the word legalist means. So here's a good example. A legalist is somebody who thinks using the law earns salvation. It's, it's that simple. Now, 
We don't believe that the law earns salvation. We don't believe anything earns salvation except the work of Christ. Right? Correct? All right, <laughs> cool. All right, just want to make sure you're staying with me here. Yeah, I'm not as engaging as Pastor Dan. He's, he's much more eloquent than I am. Amen? Oh, that was my wife. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, right. So in the book of Isaiah, we actually see uh, several instances. Um, the prophet uh, calling for justice, denouncing injustice and oppression, um, emphasizing particular ethical behaviors. Now, justice, injustice, oppression, these are very hot topics today, aren't they? Now, that doesn't mean that these things don't exist. The, the question is, is, are, is it being defined by God's law or is it being defined by your extra idea, whatever it may be, your feelings, your critical theory, or whatever? All of those are, in a sense, demonic. God's law is the standard. God's law is the standard for all of our ethical behavior. So the question is, is what does God's law say on some of these topics? Well, first, in the tapestry of ethical behavior, the virtue of truth is the central theme. We as Christians are people of the truth, right? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can get to the Father except by him. But yet, Paul, the apostle, says very clearly that truth is to be given in love. That's right. Truth in love. Very often, especially if you listen to the world, these things are contrasted, aren't they? So you're not being loving. Well, no, no, I'm just telling you the truth. Yeah, but that's not loving. Sadly, this is not just in the world, is it? This is in the church. Far too often the church is influenced by the world rather than seeking to influence the world. But yet we cannot go to other extremes and be jerks for Jesus either. No, I'm just giving them the truth. It's a hard truth. I'm speaking my mind. <sighs> no, you are being ruthless and harsh. And the Bible condemns that too. This doesn't mean that you are to be soft. It means that you are to say what is true, but to do so with how the scriptures teach of what love is. Again, love is not this ethereal idea. It's not this squishy thing that is purely emotionalism or romanticism. No, what does Scripture say love is? How many of us just thought of 1 Corinthians 13, right? Love is patient and kind. It is not envious. It is not boastful. It's not proud. Love does not 
seek its own, keeps no records of wrongs. I don't remember the rest of it offhand. So what does this look like? Again, we keep saying, what does this look like? So we're drilling down to the really specific nitty-gritties. Well, in part, it means that it's really difficult uh, to love our enemies. Again, agreed. But let's look at that politically. Who are our political enemies? The Democrats? Killery? Is this truth in love? No, this is truth in ruthlessness. And while it may be true, the purpose is not reconciliation, the purpose is not persuasion, the purpose is to win points on social media. So within this context of truth and love, there is a commitment to objective truth, but it takes on a central role in our social interactions. It, it shapes our, not just what we communicate, but how we communicate. See, Christians are to reject the notion of uh, the ends justify the means. Yeah, I just, I, I gave them the truth. Okay, how did, no, no, it doesn't matter how. You, yeah, yes it does. You see, and this, this all kind of stems with God commanding specifically how even worship was to be done. You're like, wait a second, how do you make that jump? Well, God doesn't just say, worship me, and then you could worship God however you want, does he? Who remembers Nadab and Abihu? Aaron's sons, Leviticus 10. If you're not familiar with it, Nadab and Abihu were Aaron's sons and they were also priests and they wanted to offer a fire that was uh, not commanded by the Lord specifically. And they offered it. And who remembers what God did to Nadab and Abihu? Say it a little louder. And they died, right? God fired them. <laughs> so it's not just worship me. It's I'm going to tell you how to worship me. In the same way, God says, do this, but I'm also going to tell you how to do it. You are to give truth in love. This goes beyond our interpersonal relationships, but also how we influence the fabric of society itself. Are we to go out on the street and preach? Sure. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm preaching the truth and that is loving. Okay. Um, love is patient and kind. It is not boastful or envious. Are you doing that if you're going out street preaching? Are you uh, posting on Facebook 
Love is patient and kind. What else are you doing in the public sphere? Are you teaching? Are you a civil engineer? Are you an accountant? You are to give truth in love. As far as accounting goes, I have no idea what that looks like. Truth, okay, means you're not stealing from them. That's a, that's a good thing, right? Right? Okay, just want to make sure we're on the same page here. Further, it's not just truth and love, but we add to that as well. That it shapes how we view the individual. That there is human dignity even in the faith of so-called social justice. Now, in a sense, do we have a social justice as a Christian? In a sense, yes, because we believe that justice is to be done in the social sphere, yes. That's not what people are saying when they say social justice, is it? No, they're saying justice as defined by the collective of society. It is thoroughly Marxist. If I haven't been made clear so far, morality is not defined by the collective of society. It is not defined by the individual. Morality is not defined by this historical period in which you live, because that means morality changes based on society to society, and that means morality changes with the time. But we know that God's moral law is based upon his character, and God himself does not change. Numbers 32 says, I am God. I am not man that I should change or tell a lie. Hebrews 6 teaches us that that Jesus Christ is the same forever, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And the whole purpose of that is to demonstrate that God's character does not change. Why? Why do we need to know that? Because his promises are based upon who he is. If God chose you for salvation and you're like, thank you, Lord, I, I, I'm so thankful for that. But if God changes his mind and he saves you today, what's his choice tomorrow? Change my mind. You're not saved anymore. You're going to hell. And if that's the case here, what if you're already in heaven? God's like, yeah, I know you already made it, but I changed my mind. You're out. God's law is based upon who he is. So because of that, because of his law being never-ending based upon who he is, and God's law or excuse me, in God's character is also what is imprinted upon us as humans. We have dignity, not because society says so, not because you're able to produce or do something for society, but the moment you're alive, you have value. There's intrinsic value in that.
La last example, and then I'll, I'll wrap it up here. What does this look like in the business world? So integrating, and this is kind of where I've lived for years, um, integrating Christian ethics within business practices aligns with several scriptural mandates. Matthew 22, encapsulating the golden rule, do unto others as you would have do unto yourself. If you're a, bless you, if you go to the grocery store and you're also a grocery store clerk, do you want to treat that grocery store clerk the same way you want to be treated? Or any sphere that you're living in? It's a really good book on this. It's Business to the Glory of God by Wayne Grudem, if you ever just want to look at it. But we see in Proverbs 11, this emphasizes just business practices and fair dealings stresses ethical standards with commercial engagements. We see a lot of things that are very specific within God's law. The question is, is whose responsibility is it to look through God's law and apply it to our lives? Is it your pastor's responsibility or is it yours? That's not a rhetorical question ourselves. That's right. So, so what can we do with this? Well, first off, like I said, we can look through God's law. We can look to see where these moral imperatives are found in God's law. And it's not just in the law sections of your Bible. Now, it's Genesis through Revelation. It means you've got to read the whole Bible. We look and we see all of these moral laws and we seek to figure out how do we apply this to my specific situation, whether, again, whether you're a teacher, whether you're an accountant, whatever it may be. If you need help with application, go to your pastors. Also, what else can you do to it? You can go to your deacons of your church and say, hey, is there a way that we can do a ministry that deals with this specific area within the public sphere? Because we as Christians first need to take the plank out of our own eye before we can call out the speck in the public sphere's eye. Amen? Well, let's wrap it up here. Um, the, Lord, the Lord's law is good. Scripture says this over and over. The moral law still applies today. How do we apply this in our lives well, first, it means reading it. If you need help with applying it, go to your pastors. That's what they're there for. Their job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And whose job is it? All of ours. This is not a duty of the pastor. This is a duty of the congregation. And lastly, it starts with taking care of our homes in this respect. That's what Alan's class is about. Also our churches and then the wider sphere. Amen? All right. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we thank you for your law. Scripture says over and over, I delight in your law. And Lord, sometimes that's a very hard statement to say. Lord, I, I rejoice in you and you've given us your law, but Sometimes I do not delight 
in the law. Help me delight in it. Help me delight in um, your law. Help me meditate on it day and night. Because it is starting from that point that I am able to apply it into concentric, wider spheres. Help me, Lord, with all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen.